1: For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today.
2: This week, the 12th episode of our second year. It premiered in March of 2011, and it's called Faked.
3: You gotta put your head in that alligator's mouth. Your girlfriend is watching. Don't be a pussy. You got what it takes to reach for the stars. Do it, do it, do it, do it. Go for the gold. Life is a game, and you just gotta win. That alligator's calling you. Now stick your head in. You gotta take risks if you wanna be a man. Grab black by the face.
4: Oh god. Oh my god. I am sorry, that was that was terrible advice.
2: I wanna hear that. Hey kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. They just didn't see themselves doing it. They thought, "Yeah, dare to share." I don't. I don't see it. I don't see it. But they came around because here they are today. I'm Kevin Allison. That was Ninja Sex Party up top, which sounds like a great time to me. On account of my,
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> we're off to a rip-roared start on this one. This is Vernon Lenoir behind me now. And our title of the day is Faked. So these are stories where people were being faked out or people were faking others out. And all of these stories features an orangutan. No, I'm just kidding. There's not an orangutan in the bunch. But all of them are true, which is a little iffy for a show titled Faked. Our first story comes from a very iffy character. Mr. Peter Aguero is one of the most beloved storytellers in New York City. He tells at The Moth and The Liar Show, all sorts of shows around town. He also teaches. He teaches at-risk kids, people rehabilitating themselves how to tell stories. So Peter's just a great guy all around. And we call his story The Trouble with Whitey.
5: go back to a a very bright spring day and all the lights were off in the classroom and I'm standing in the front and there are 22 15 year old sophomores uh, looking at me because I'm their teacher and uh, I close the textbook and I decide now is the time that I'm going to give them the truth and I tell them I say there's one thing I want you to take away from from this experience and it's this there's one constant in life Whitey screws it up for everybody (laughs) look throughout history you can see no matter what it is Whitey shows up people die everybody gets sick things go downhill it's just what it is so like that's shorthand for our history so there you go I uh, had, in, in the state of New Jersey, uh, they require uh, an associate's degree or 60 credits to be a substitute teacher. Uh, I had gone to college for five years and I got 66 credits. So, do the, do the math. <laughs> it's almost more impressive. So, uh, you know, I was working as a substitute teacher. I'd just come out of a really rough time in my life. My family called it the dark days. Uh, uh, Whatever you think was happening to me, that's what was happening to me. I was was living in a room on the third floor somewhere shaking. And uh, some uh, family members of mine had saved my life and got me out of where I was. And uh, I started substitute teaching because I had just enough college credit to do that. So... (laughs) I found myself being put in charge of groups of children, and uh, it was easy. It was really easy. Most of the time, they would just leave videos, you know. It was really easy. Uh, so, uh, I went back to my my old high school to visit some old teachers and stuff. They, you know, I told them what was going on. They were like, yeah, well, we'll, we'll start using you here. I was like, that'd be great, you know, because I, I had a good, I mean, you know, what, it was... It wasn't a perfect experience in high school, but it was you know, it was nice. I, it was it was a familiar, comfortable place where where there were the rhythms were something that I understood and it was exactly what I needed to get myself back into you know, the swing of reality um, after taking myself out of it for a couple years. So I went in and, and, and was substitute for some other teachers, I got to hang out in the teachers lounge. That was fun, see all the little places where you you know you could go in the school where I wasn't allowed to when I went there, you know, it was great. and uh, one day I get a phone call from uh, the most inspirational teacher I ever had, Sister Gilmary she was a six foot tall nun, she was awesome Uh, by this time she was in administration and she called me one day and she said Mr. Egan, who was my U.S. history teacher when I was there, he just had a stroke yesterday and we need somebody to take over until the the rest of the year and it was January, so like that was six months of, of daily work so I was like, yeah, of course I'll do it so it was pretty awesome, I, like, I, you know, I, I showed up and I got to make the class what I wanted it to be. We were doing uh, the Civil War, was what we were teaching, and so like, I, I split the class up, I had, uh, four classes. I split them all up in the north and south, I put a masking tape map of the eastern seaboard of the United States on the floor, I elected a Lincoln and a Jefferson Davis, and they had debates. And, uh, I let all the black kids be slave owners. And it was, that was awesome. Like the kids that I knew that were, uh, the rich kids, cause this is a, a Catholic high school, I made them specifically poor white trash. Like they had to be in the South and be poor white trash. Uh, so that was good. And it was fascinating. And like, Yeah, I would put posters up on the walls of like, Jimi Hendrix and and Janis Joplin for no reason other than than I wanted to. And uh, when the kids would uh, go to the bathroom, instead of having hall passes, I would make them take their desk with them, and that was their hall pass. It's like, (laughs) all that goofy shit, that was fun, you know? I had an air horn uh, that I would blow just randomly, like not because of any reason. Not they were not doing anything wrong, anything. I'd just be sitting there at my desk, and every once in a while, just and like the other teachers hated it, and I would just laugh. It was awesome. It was awesome. I had no business being there. You know what I mean? No, it was it was completely ri- completely ridiculous. And and but like I realized, you know, like I okay, yeah, I, I can do this. This is easy, you know. I would have the kids, uh, we'd go outside, have class outside, and, like, I'd make them sit 30 feet away from each other so they would have to meditate or just, you know, think about their day. Stuff like that that I wish my uh, teachers had done for me. And, and, you know, the teachers at the school, they were just happy to see me, you know alive. So they just let me do all this stuff. And uh, I had this one thing that I would do. The way I had the the room set up, you know, the the kids were all on either side on the like those were the short sides of the room and the windows were out here and my desk was in the middle. I had one desk in each of the classes that I put right in front of my desk, like facing mine, like right there. And whatever kid had the lowest grade at any given time, I would have them sit there. I wouldn't tell them why. I would just, like, have, you know, every once in a while, that, the kid who was there would work because he had to, because he was sitting right in front of me. And he would, his, he would bring his grades up, and then I'd bring somebody else over there. And it was, like, this little weird subversive thing that, like, worked. It really worked. Uh, it's not in any textbooks. Uh, <laughs> we're in the bong that I used in college. So, uh, <laughs> or maybe that's where it was. So, um you know it's just things are really interesting and I'm feeling good again and I'm feeling normal but you know it's this weird existence that wasn't going to last forever because they weren't going to hire me like permanently but I was really making the most of everything that I could do the trouble is I got too familiar I got a little cocky hubris uh makes its way in there I started getting reprimanded for things I stopped wearing shoes they didn't like that (laughs) you know like things like that and and uh they (laughs) I got like I said too familiar with the kids this one kid in particular this kid Mike he was in and out of the center of attention chair is what I called it and uh he was in and out of there, and, and I, I saw a lot of myself when I was that age in Mike. He was a nice kid, but just like a little socially awkward. He was too loud, uh, and he just, you know, was the kid that was easily made fun of. He just liked the attention, and he was just a mess. He just wasn't focused, but he was a smart kid. And I started talking to him and, and, and you know, kind of trying to help him out, you know, and he started doing well. Like, I would, I would ask him questions about the battles we were studying or ideas behind why the, the war started and, and it's all that stuff. And he he would answer them. And then he started asking questions, which is the victory, you know? Like, he was curious about things. And, and I'm not going to say we were friends because we weren't, but it was like I felt touched by the opportunity to be able to help this one kid out that, you know, maybe going back in time, you know, I was helping myself out in a way. Until one day, uh, <coughs> we were talking about Football blocking techniques, uh, because that happened in the battle of, you know, Little little Big Top. Uh, and, you know, I had played football. What happened was they had looked back in the library at the uh, yearbooks and saw that I was on the football team for the first two years of uh, high school. So they were asking me about it, like what it was like. When, when I was there because all the kids were on the football team it was like a football factory school and they started talking about did they still teach they teach us this way to block and uh, I was like yeah it was three steps you go you step load and hit and they're like yeah yeah that's exactly how they show it and then like Mike's like do me do me I was like no he's a little skinny kid I'm not going to do that he's like come on come on Mr. Ray <laughs> get up here and show me and I said no Mike I'm not going to do that Pick up your textbook. I'll hit your textbook. So I took a step, I locked, I hit, and Mike flew back in the air and hit the back of his head on the corner of a desk. Yeah. (laughs) And he stood up, and there was blood streaming down there, because like a scalp cut will bleed. And he was bleeding down the back. Immediately, I said, okay, this doesn't leave the room. (laughs) okay? It's all going to be fine. Mike, go to the nurse. You know? And he went down to the nurse and everyone was, oh, Mr. Ray, don't worry. We won't tell anybody. You know, It's fine. It was an accident. Don't worry. The bell rings. The kids leave. The next kids come in. The second kid in the room said, oh, I heard what happened with Mike. <laughs> I was fucked. I mean, like, I, my future, my, my freedom uh, was in the, the hands of these kids. And uh, I lost all control that day. It was all, like at the end of the you know, they essentially blackmailed me. They didn't tell any of the teachers. They just all told each other. Uh, so I didn't get in trouble, but Mike came in the next day. He said, oh, I told my mom that I, I, just, I did something stupid. And she was like, oh, Mike, you're always doing something stupid. It was good. And then we finished the year, and I never went back. But about eight years later, I was in a Wawa down in South Jersey getting myself a 10-inch American classic, uh, stoned at 2 in the morning. And... Uh, when I was a teacher I was very clean cut and everything now I look like this and I'm in there you know and, and I'm just like ordering my shit and Mike comes walking in now he's the age I was when I was his teacher and our eyes meet and he ignores me and he goes the other way and I got my sandwich and I got in, in the car and I went home and I said he learned never trust Whitey <laughs>
2: Living a been living
3: a lie. There's chicken smiling on the can. Living a lie, you've been living a lie. Happy fishy in the pond. Living a lie, you've been living a lie. There's pretty words that's
6: gotta alive, songs in these times. Alive, alive, that scattered rhyme. Living a lie, you've been living a lie. Living a lie, you've been living a lie. Living a lie, you've been living a lie. Kicking out dust
3: up in your life. Alligator shoes and crocodiles.
6: You know, one time I had a friend, I'm just gonna tell you a terrible thing, I had a friend who's a doctor, see. You know, we were making talk, and I said to them, hey, Joe, you're a doctor. And Joe said, ah, don't give me that jazz, that's what they say. I said, Joe, you are a doctor. Now, Joe, tell me about this, now I got a pain. He says, why don't you go see a doctor? I says, Joe, you are a doctor. He says, oh, well, that's what my sign says. Listen. How many times when you're going through high school and you, you faked it, getting through algebra, you faked geometry, you faked history? He says, well, I faked zoology, anatomy, pharmacology. I faked lobotomy, hippopotomy. I faked it all. I says, Joe, don't tell me that. Why, well, I know it's the truth. I said, well, you know, on the way home. And I says, Joe, how about going to... She says, I can't. I got to get up early tomorrow morning. I got an operation down to the hospital. I said, Joe, do you want me to sit in for you? I'll take it if you don't want to do it. And there's a big pregnant point. He said, oh, you could do as good as I' gonna do." Mm.
2: This is risk that was Gene Shepherd, the great Gene Shepherd, uh, who is kind of the godfather of radio storytelling. Uh, if, you, if you've never heard any of his radio stuff, you surely know him from the movie uh, A Christmas Story. Uh, that whole film was based on stories that he originally told on the radio in the late 50s, early 60s. Right now, we are hearing the music of Latchkey Swing, and before all that, we heard John Langford doing his song, "Living a Lie. Our next storyteller is a beautiful lady. She's been with us from the very beginning, and we often get emails about how much people love her. This is Elna Baker with a story we call Like a Virgin.
7: I had written an article for Glamour, and it was called, Yes! I'm a 27-year-old virgin. Uh, that was their title. If, if I titled it, I would have been like, I can't believe I haven't had sex yet. <laughs> so, and, you know, I was Mormon. I moved to the city when I was 18, and I, you know, had made the decision to wait until marriage. I just didn't realize how long it would take, and also that I'm not really into getting married either. So, <laughs> it's this complicated thing. Uh, but I still decided I would hold out for the one. And then uh, I wrote this article, and it ended up being the most popular article of the year. It was translated into four languages. Uh, they ran it on MSN, CNN, and Glamour and I started getting all these fan letters, thousands of them. And I would get emails every day from these 15-year-old girls saying, like, I'm going to wait until I'm 28, too. And I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> well, five months after the piece came out, I had sex. (laughs) I know. I know. I had decided to take a break from being Mormon, you know. So, you know, it was like my putting the rum in rum spring. You know, I drank, I smoked, I, uh, and then eventually uh, I decided I was ready to move forward in relationships. And the reason that things hadn't worked out year after year and year was because I was waiting. And I decided. I wasn't going to wait anymore, and the next relationship I got in, we had sex. And, you know, in addition to the sort of identity shift that that was, there was also the religious guilt, and it didn't help that every day I would have sex with my boyfriend, check my email, and some 15-year-old would have written me and said, you know, I'm so proud that you're waiting. (laughs) (laughs) one morning I remember we had just fooled around and I checked my email and there was an email from this 38 year old virgin who was serving in Iraq and she wrote me about how she'd read my article and it had given her so much hope and I thought, I used to give people hope, now I just give people head, like that's my life (laughs) And that's when, around the time that Glamour asked me if I wanted to write a short piece on what I know now that I wish someone had told me. And I thought about all these things I'd learned from having sex for the first time at 28, and I decided I could also, you know, out myself. Stop being a spokesperson for virginity. So I wrote this 300-word piece about it, and I turned it in. Glamour flipped out. They were like, OMG, you are not a virgin. And so they said they weren't gonna publish it with these other authors. They wanted to give me a 4,000 word feature and a photo shoot so I could tell my story. I didn't really want to tell my story. Um, Not at all. My parents are very strict Mormons, and they did not know that I was having sex. And a 300-word thing, they probably wouldn't find out about it. They don't read Glamour. But 4,000 words in the photo shoot, and I'm on Google Alerts. My mom has me on Google Alerts. It's the only reason I don't do drugs. Um, So... So I told them I wasn't sure if I could write it, and then I sat down on my computer and I did that thing that you do to yourself sometimes where you say, I'm not going to write this, but if I did, and I wrote this piece that was really honest and about what it felt like and truthful, and I read it and I thought, I've never heard anyone write anything like this. I'm not going to be afraid. I'll put this out there. So I turned it in, and coincidentally, I was just about to go visit my parents. Uh, They live in Siberia. (laughs) my dad runs a titanium factory in the middle of nowhere in Siberia and um, I was flying out to visit them and actually it was I'd taken my break from being Mormon right around the time they moved I was like Siberia they'll never know what I'm up to (laughs) so I flew out to Siberia and I decided face to face I was gonna tell my parents that I was having sex And I was there for 10 days. And every day there was like a moment or an opportunity where I felt like I could do it. You know, my mother would be like, oh, look at that beautiful, pure white snow. And I would think, I'm not a virgin. (laughs) (laughs) But then I would so chicken out. I was too afraid. I mean, I genuinely love my parents and I want to have a relationship with them. And about half of me thought they could disown me and they could cut me off and it's totally plausible. So the last day of the trip, I still hadn't told them. And my mother and I were having breakfast. And I thought, okay, I'll tell my mom. She'll tell my dad. So I was just about to tell her. I said, Mom, I have to tell you something. And I cut into my egg. It was eggs over easy. And it splashed up into my eye, which was like kind of a poetic metaphor for (laughs) what I've been up to. But it splashed into my eye. And I go, oh, my God. And my mother slammed her silverware down and said, do not take the Lord's name in vain in front of me. Do you know how much that hurts me? And I thought, oh, my God, I can never tell her anything. I cannot say anything. And I didn't say anything. And I flew back to New York, and Glamour had set up a photo shoot for this article. And I show up. It's my first big photo shoot, and there's 17 people. They doll you up, all this stuff. And I, finally, I'm all ready, and I stand in front of the screen, and the photographer has the camera, and he says, uh, so what's your, your article about? Just trying to, you know, warm me up. And I say uh, about how I just lost my virginity, <laughs> and I literally got splotches all over my chest, and they were like makeup, <laughs> and then to cover me, makeup. And it took about half an hour for me to warm up and be comfortable. And just when I did, the photo editor sort of snuck over and said you know, we thought it might be fun if you posed with these cherries in your mouth. I know, and I was like, oh, that's really not the tone of the piece at all. It's much more introspective. And they're like, well, um, you know, we haven't read the piece, so if it doesn't work, your editor, I'm sure, won't use it, but it might be good just to have the option. And I look up, and 17 people are all just on the edge of their seat looking at me, and it's clear this was the plan from the beginning. And I, of course, in that moment feel this pressure and I say, I guess we could just take a few well you know I've been so nervous with all of them looking at me that they hand me a prop and I immediately I go from saying like I could never do this to becoming a prop comedian I'm like blowjob cherry shots I did so many things to those cherries <laughs> and I finish this shoot and I walk outside and it hits me what I've just done and I'm like oh my god this is so mortifying so I call the editor and I tell her about this I'm like please don't use those photos it was a mistake I, I don't know what I was thinking and she says, don't worry, I'm sure it won't really fit with the piece. And then she says, about the piece, uh, I'm about to send you the edits. We made a lot of changes, mostly because we were worried that the Glamour readers who were so proud of you would be kind of disappointed in your choice. And uh, so we switched things around to kind of lessen that. I was like, what does that mean? Well, I got the piece, and they, sure enough, had cut 2,000 words. And I had um, I'd almost gotten married when I was 24 to a Mormon and then I moved back to New York and tried to date, tried to make that work and then made a decision to stop being Mormon. Well, the way they changed the piece made it seem like I'd almost gotten married, it didn't work and I had sex. So it's just that typical story of like, girl doesn't get what she wants, girl gives up and all the complexity that I had written about was gone. So I sent an edit back in where I tried to bring it back, took out all the magaziney lines and I sent it back in and she said, you know, we'll try to incorporate as much as we can. Well, it was the week before it was supposed to go to print. And I called her and said, you know, can I see the photo? Can I see the article? And she said, yeah, I'll send you the PDF as soon as I can. Well, for the next few days, I called every day trying to get this PDF. She wouldn't send it. The last day, she called to say, oh, I just found out we're not allowed to show you the PDF. And so I freaked out. I called my agent. I was like, we have to pull this piece. I I don't even know what it's going to say. And it was too late. It had already gone to print and it was too late because if it went to print, my parents would find out. So I called them in Siberia. Um, And I basically gave them a speech which I was later told by all my gay friends is the same speech every one of them gave to their parents when they came out. (laughs) It began with, for the last year I've been, you know, I've made this life choice that I've been worried that you would maybe disown me for, and I want to be honest with you about who I really am and I'm not doing this to hurt you, but I just, recently I had sex, and I'm very sorry. And they were both quiet for a while, and I, you know, I said I really don't want to disappoint you. And they were quiet, and then my dad said, well you have disappointed us. But you know, you're our daughter and we still accept and love you and and you'll still be a part of our family. You know, it was the best case scenario. But it also was the first big moment in my life where I realized how many people I had disappointed and that it was okay. And I sort of felt like an adult. Like maybe what I need to do now on is do what I want to do and disappoint people around me just because they don't matter (laughs) as much as what it is I want to do. And um... I think that's a, isn't that being a sociopath? Anyway. <laughs> um, so uh, so uh, I found out that the article had come out uh, one morning when I checked my email and I had an email from a 15 year old girl and it said, I read your article in Glamour. I am 15, I'm waiting to, I." I can't believe you waited till you're 28. I hope to wait that long, too. But it's nice to know that if I don't, and if I go for the gold, that's okay, too. <laughs> ran to a newsstand and sure enough this article the the headline was guess what I'm not a virgin anymore exclamation point and then there's a photo of me my boobs are photoshop weird and then uh I have it, it wasn't a blowjob cherry shot I'm like dang so it was like tea baggy these two cherries above my mouth and then there were lines that they wrote that forever will seem like I wrote this one of the lines was um uh, thankfully sex quickly went from being painful to pure pleasure <laughs> and the best part was uh, underneath the photo there was the author caption and it said Elna Baker writer and former virgin <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is like Barack Obama president and former virgin anyone can be that <laughs> but, I, but I read that caption and I thought you know what yeah I had sex, but it was Glamour who took my virginity. <laughs> Thank you.
8: Full speed ahead, rock and roll is dead. The girls and boys from the Mickey Mouse Club clocked it in the head. TV makes people so tired, Boy, as a bird on the wire. I check the pulse and I light a match, and then I set the telly on. I set the telly on fire. Tell me what's the deal? Tell me.
4: So we were new in town when we saw the story in the paper. It said Mrs. B bowled duckpins like a pro, and she'd been doing it at the Southway Alley since the 40s. Now she managed the place with her son. We recognized her from the paper the moment we walked in. She gave us a huge smile, and so did her son, who was renting the shoes. You folks enjoy yourself, all right? We could tell he was Mrs. B's boy. He had the same pug nose. Everything was old, and the reset button jammed. Before we could complain, the sun ran up and said,
6: Let me get that for you.
4: And he disappeared into the inner workings. So on his way back, he shot us a nasty look and he said,
1: Hey, kick those beers back behind the line.
4: We thought, that's a hell of a short fuse. Four frames later, he walked past again. He'd calmed down totally. You guys having fun? Let me know if you need anything, okay? So we started a new game. Somebody dropped a ball. The sun came charging at us. No bouncing, goddammit. I already told you to keep them damn beers off the hardwood. Jesus H. It wasn't ten minutes later when he stopped by to congratulate us on a strike. You know, you folks would have a great time here on league night. (laughs) Just remember, you're always welcome. And ten minutes after that... You changed into sneakers? I swear to Christ, you'll never bowl here again. Mrs. B's son was freaking us out, so we paid up, and we were almost out the door when we turned for one last look, and we saw all three of them. The article in the newspaper had been all wrong. The alley was run by Mrs. B and her sons, plural, the nicest guy you'd ever want to meet, and his manic, evil twin.
8: By most accounts, I think I'm still a tremendous man-child. I still think I'm sort of just playing at being a grown-up. I haven't really done anything that makes me like officially feel like an adult. I've never had a bar mitzvah to let me know that I'm a man, or gone on any great hunt with the tribe, or raided a neighboring village to take a child bride. I've never really done any of that stuff. I mean, I pay my rent on time which is awesome, but I will still eat a bag of pretzels and call that dinner. Ironically enough, I think the one time I felt most like an adult was when I was 17 years old. My mother, my brother and I lived on a Hindu ashram. So mom's a hippie and she raised me and my brother on an ashram and so my brother's name is Gangadas, uh, which means servant of the river and uh, the river in this case is the Ganges in India. So his name literally means servant of the Ganges. My brother is one of these um, obnoxiously gifted natural athletes. He is sort of explained the rules to something one time and has mastered it in the same amount of time it's taken for me to tie my shoes. He's like half a foot taller than I am, bright blonde hair, sort of this track runner's frame. Yeah, he he looks looks like a beach boy basically. You know, surfing, hockey, tennis, martial arts, all these things mastered. He was a prodigy. Me not not so much. I was definitely a little bit more of an indoors kid while my brother was training his body to do ninja kicks through cinder blocks, I could be found drinking stolen cooking wine and smoking my first pot while Memorizing the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons rulebook. The siblings of our age group, you know, started getting sort of angsty and teenagery and started growing apart. But not us. You know, as soon as he was done scoring three pointers and I was done memorizing the uh, weapons compendium for Immortals Volume Two, we were still like solely relying on each other. We were still best friends. So my brother had been getting sick just the common cold symptoms you know just low energy cough kind of clammy he kept missing days of school and my mom who is a big proponent of eastern medicine tried to solve it through homeopathy and diet and all this stuff and finally after you know two months of my brother just feeling like crap she um kind of buckled and decided to take him to a traditional doctor so the doctor, instead of discovering a hearty case of the common cold, discovered a grapefruit-sized tumor growing in my brother's chest. Gangaras was diagnosed with type 1 Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, this is a type of cancer that attacks the lymphatic system and is considered by most to be pretty aggressive. We'd waited long enough to where the doctors uh, knew that chemotherapy was unavoidable. Now. You know, chemo is basically just bombarding your entire system with medical grade poison. It'll turn even the healthiest of adults into sort of these sallow caricatures of themselves. You know, you quickly lose weight and strength, of course your hair. So imagine what this was like for a 15 year old kid. My brother's height, which was something that I'd always secretly envied, became even more pronounced as the pounds fell off And that blonde hair that we'd always made fun of sort of fell away and became, you know, replaced by a ubiquitous blue bandana. We couldn't figure it out. We tried thinking about how or where it might have come from. And I personally couldn't figure it out. And it weighed heavily on me because here was this perfect athlete, this somebody who's in the picture of health. And this has now been laid low by this invisible hand. I couldn't figure it out. I mean, maybe the combination of Carlo Rossi, Chablis, and and bong rips had somehow pickled my immune system into invulnerability. But I felt guilty somewhere. After a few months, the doctors started noticing that the chemo wasn't working. The chemo was sort of killing my brother at a somewhat slower rate than the cancer was. And the cancer was still outpacing the chemo. So the doctors decided that it was time for more drastic steps. Since I was my brother's closest living genetic match, they asked me if I would be willing to undergo a bone marrow transplant. Bone marrow transplants are one of the most notoriously invasive and painful operations that you can go under. They basically take the equivalent to a Black & Decker drill and drill into your bones and uh, pull out, the yellow marrow inside with hypodermic needles and you can't be put under for this you have to stay awake and of course I said yes (laughs) learning all that I had you know I'm not gonna say no but the doctor said you know if you want to donate you have to be uh, the picture of human health you can have no toxins in your body whatsoever you have to purge your body of everything so no caffeine no alcohol no THC no nicotine nothing of course, you know, I said yes. And our mother, in all of her sort of maternal enthusiasm, decided to help me get on track. She got me on a vegan, vegetarian diet, got me on an exercise regime, and, you know, started feeding me handfuls of Asian supplements every four hours. And, you know, she was very, very enthusiastic about it. She was on top of it all the time. She was. <laughs> excited to, you know, help me share her diet. And she was very, she was very enthusiastic about it. Yeah, I kind of hated it at first, but I'm not the kind of person to complain. So there I am, you know, jogging twice a day and eating tofu whenever I'm hungry. And, and this, is, this goes on for months, you know, this, this is four months, five months, six months that I'm, you know, training my body like a young Bruce Wayne and still no date for the surgery has been set. And I start to get concerned. I feel like we're sort of waiting too long. I, uh, I feel like, you know, cancer doesn't really wait around. It's not notoriously patient disease. And so I, I sort of voice my concern. And then the surgery date keeps getting pushed back. You know, it's de- December to February, February to May. Finally, I, I say something to my brother. I'm like, what's the deal? When are we going to do this? And finally, my brother called me from his hospital. He'd been living in Gainesville at the time at Shans Oncology Center. And he calls me up and he says to me, you know, I actually don't need your bone marrow. I had a stem cell transplant about four months ago. Mom's been lying to you this entire time to keep you clean living. I was fucking furious. <laughs> I, I wanted to freak out. Here's my mom using my brother's cancer as this sort of leverage tool against me to live this more holistic lifestyle. And I almost lost my shit. My brother swore me to secrecy. He's like, you can't say anything. He's like, I overheard her talking. She's like, you can't, you cannot bring it up. Uh, of course, you know, you, if your brother who has cancer asks you to keep a secret, you keep a secret. So yeah, I sat on it and these stem cells had done their job. they are these miraculous, malleable cells that had been injected into my brother's lymphatic system you know was able to boost my brother's immune system to give the chemo a firmer footing I was ready to give my bone marrow but you know luckily we didn't need it and I think the stem cells had done a better job anyway so yeah the stem cells had done their job and you know my mother had done her job by lying to me and basically making me live like a 17 year old shut in years later you know we all look back on it You know, only very recently have I brought it up. I was like, you know, you remember when you lied to me for the better part of a year? And Ganga is always like, yeah, that was kind of messed up. And she just sort of looks at the two of us and just goes, I don't know what either of you are talking about.
2: We have been many places since I spoke to you last. We started with the amazing performer Alice Smith with her song, Fake is the New Real. And Miss Smith is certainly a force fighting that trend. She's at alicesmith.com. Now, after that, something really cool happened this week. We had this couple, Jane and Jeff, they have their own advertising copywriting website it's called riskybbq.com anyway they wrote in that they had had this experience at their local bowling alley and they recorded the story themselves i asked if i could have a couple of actors david crab and jack perry redo it redo the recording and they said sure after that we heard from hanuman welch with his story clean living Hanuman is a member of a group called MIMSY, M-I-M-S-Y, and they are an improvisational storytelling troupe. (laughs) Just to show you how much is going on in New York City uh, in this realm, uh, how people are really starting to push the envelope. And God bless it all. After that, we heard a bit of the great... Sound collage artist John Oswald's song Pretender, which is an adaptation of Dolly Parton's rendition of The Great Pretender. And this is Teddy Pressburg behind me now, one of our favorite new instrumentalists donating music to the show.
3: nature of the job is it's a little unusual you would be working down in a pit mm-hmm. uh, in which I have created uh, through scientific endeavor I have created intense flame what we're trying to do really is to create a living hell have have people pay admission they look down in the pit they see you down there the flames are all around you there will be four maniacs with you and you've got to control them now wait a minute I, I understand that you said four maniacs yes Yeah. and uh, You mean I got to tell them what to do or try to keep them together or something like that? Yes, exactly. Control them and see that they don't interfere with you because they will. That's what they're going to try and do. Uh And uh, this is part of the attraction. Oh, I see. It sounds very interesting. Have you worked with maniacs before? No, never one other uh, aspect large bats fly through the air you've seen bats haven't yeah. you these are very large bats with uh i might say extremely large teeth from the photo i saw they'll be swooping down over your head would the bats at all deter you from doing your job no i don't think so if i had a job to do i'd try to do it regardless of the bats or anybody else now i am i'll explain the situation to start with i want to be sure you can handle a job i am paying 46 dollars a week uh initially uh, is this agreeable Sounds okay. Have you ever consumed bats? No, I haven't. Would you look forward to the idea of actually consuming uh, bats? Eating one? Yes. I guess so. See, the bats, uh, the bats, actually, they're foes down in this pit. The reason why the bats are there is because there are snakes in the pit. Uh, the bats attack the snakes, and the snakes will be curling around your feet as you're trying to handle the maniacs. Yeah, I'm now, not scared of snakes, though. What? I'm not scared of snakes. Are you at all, and be honest, are you at all afraid of the maniacs? No, not really. <laughs> and you will take the position.
6: Yeah, i, I like to try. When we first met
2: and Sharp from their radio show in the 60s, Uh, that's excerpts of their stuff and this behind me now is Hello Goodbye, I have just fallen in love with this song it's called When We First Met you might as well check them out at hellogoodbye.net I certainly don't see why not well, this was Risk, created and hosted by me, Kevin Allison. Our shows, our tours, our workshops are uh, produced by Michelle Walson, Madison Perry, Chris Castiglione, and Phil Murphy. Our episode editor is Mike Cades. Our story editors are Jeff Mersel, Andy Kroner, David Crabb, and Jeff Barr. Our associate producers are Nina Moses and my lovely new assistant, JC. And this is the part of the show where I say, folks, today's the day. Take a risk.